Howdy, and welcome to the Six-Gun Justice Podcast, where we saddle up and ride hell for leather into the blazing six-gun action of the Western genre in books, movies, TV, and any other media at home on the range. I'm your host, Paul Bishop. So far, our Six-Gun Justice Podcast World Wide West Tour has taken us to Mexico, Germany, and Australia, where we've explored the indigenous Western novels, films, and comics of those countries, along with their prolific indigenous Western writers, most of whom have never set foot in America, let alone been west of the Mississippi. But even though they are mostly unknown in America, these are true Westerns in every sense, and we are missing out if we don't spend some time acknowledging them. Last episode, I was joined by Dave Whitehead, better known as best-selling Western writer Ben Bridges, for a roundup in Old Blighty for part one of our exploration of Westerns written by the Piccadilly Cowboys as well as other British writers who have produced almost uncountable Westerns written by indigenous English wordslingers. For part two of our worldwide West tour stop in England, I'm joined by Andrew McBride, who has written eight critically acclaimed Western novels set in Arizona and New Mexico in the 1870s and 1880s, featuring sometime Indian scout, sometime sheriff, sometime stage agent, and wagon train guide Calvin Taylor. Andrew often features historical figures such as the Apache chief Cochise, Billy the Kid, and Wyatt Earp in his stories. His latest novel, Cimarron, was published in August of this year by Five Star and has been praised as a superlative story filled with historic details, page-turning, viscerally satisfying action that compares to the best of the classic westerns. Hey, friend. Thanks for joining me on the Six-Gun Justice podcast today. Well, it's very nice to be here, Paul. Very nice speaking to you, and thanks for the build-up. Have you been to America before you started writing westerns? Before I started writing westerns, no. I've been to the States since. And was that for research at that point? No, that was for a thing called a holiday. I've had lots of very enjoyable holidays in the States. I love it. But when I started writing Westerns, which was back in the mid-90s, I'd not actually been across the pond. What makes a Englishman turn to writing Westerns? I'm a child of the 60s. I'm 68. So in the 1960s, the Western was very much part of the culture that I was growing up with. An awful lot of the television that I was watching were American imports programs like The Man from Uncle, things like that, but also a lot of TV westerns and also western movies were being shown, John Wayne, etc. So if you got hold of the average Briton, the average Englishman in the 60s who'd been watching television, they would be fairly clued in on the American West. They would be quite knowledgeable about it without being too about it because all this westerns were just there. They were part of the cultural were you reading Westerns? Did you grow up with this as a child? Did television shows bring you to the world of novels? It started really with TV. In 1967, a new channel started in Britain called BBC Two. My family couldn't get it, so I used to go and visit a school pal of mine. And one of the signature programs they were bringing out to advertise this new channel was a TV Western series called The High Chaparral. Ah, yes. Now, I'd watched TV Westerns before, but I thought they were the poor relation of movies because one of the things I always loved about the Western, and I was conscious of this even when I was only sort of 12 and 13, was the landscape. I just fell in love with that landscape, whether it was John Ford doing Monument Valley or whatever. And when I was watching the TV Western, the Bonanzas and the Virginians and things like that, whilst I enjoyed them, mostly the landscape was not a feature. They were either filmed on sound stages or Hollywood backlots, and that didn't engage me. So I tuned into the High Chaparral, and suddenly I'm seeing this show that is filmed on location in Old Tucson in Arizona. 
And what you're getting is real sweat, real dust, real heat, these stunningly beautiful, primitive, strange, but wonderful landscapes. I knew a lot of people in England who used to watch the High Chaparral who didn't even like Westerns, but they just fell in love with that landscape. High Chaparral in particular had a huge impact in Europe that was actually even larger than in the United States. I understand Sweden still has an annual (laughs) High Chaparral festival. Yes, at the theme park, isn't there? So you go five miles out of Stockholm and you find the High Chaparral. Then with the TV tie-in novels, there was only, I think, two of the six High Chaparral TV tie-in novels that were published in America. The others were just published in Europe. There's still very strong affection for this show in Europe. When we did our episodes in Germany, again, High Chaparral came up as the best Western on TV. It's incredible the influence that it's had. I think because it had the production values of a Hollywood movie. And it's actually stunningly beautiful. And maybe that's what connects to people in this rather gray, rainy northern part of the world, that you can be transported to this desert. I also think the characters and the dynamics in that series were very strong, as opposed to some other series that just set up the shootout of the week. With High Chaparral, there was some real depth there. People tied into that as well. Yeah, it's something that I didn't necessarily appreciate at the time, but I have appreciated since. One of the other reasons I didn't like TV Westerns particularly was that the heroes tended to be, quite frankly, a bit boring. They were virtuous. They never made mistakes. They didn't get drunk. Whereas the characters in the High Chaparral were all flawed. They did stupid things, sometimes irresponsible things. So they were just like the rest of us. Absolutely, (laughs) yeah. Just as clunky and bashing into the furniture as the rest of us. But they would always become heroes in the course of the show, but they weren't always heroic throughout the show. Character was very important. That's one of the strengths that made the High Chaparral the best TV Western series for me. One of the things they did with the early Gunsmoke shows, the half-hour shows and the black-and-white hour shows, there was a very moral ambiguity to the shows. There was no easy endings, no easy answers. There was this gray area between good guys and bad guys, and hopefully your heroes are going to rise. That's the way it was with High Chaparral. The early shows were really miniature moral plays. It really worked to draw people in. How are they going to get out of this? How are they going to solve this problem? Because we all have problems in our lives that kind of parallel in some ways. Yeah, exactly. You'd watch some of these TV Westerns and they all became bad mystery shows. Some guy would go to sell some cattle somewhere and he'd be charged with murder and all that kind of stuff, which seemed very phony to me. Whereas with the High Chaparral, the characters find themselves in a situation and they have to make moral choices. And rather than being instant heroes who instantly know what to do and instantly always do the right thing, they have to muddle the way through like real people, like the rest of us really have to do, which makes them much more believable and much more human. When it comes to Western novels, did you read Louis L'Amour? Did you read the Piccadilly Cowboys? Did they have an influence on you in any way or any other writers? Oh, yeah. The High Chaparral had a very strong sort of historical context. It was set in the Apache Wars. My school pal had got interested in that, and he picked up this novel called Broken Arrow, which was the junior version of Blood Brother, which is Elliot Arnold's novel, which was made into a movie called Broken Arrow. So I read the junior version, and that interested me not only in getting into Western fiction, but also Native American culture and and the historical background of the West, which has featured a lot in the Westerns I've written. And then about 10 years later, we have to jump forward now, we can leave the high chaparral behind, the late 70s, when early manhood, a friend of mine turned me on to a series Western. He was reading books by a guy called Matt Chisholm, who wrote many books. The particular series I liked was with a character called McAllister, and they really clicked for me. 
Matt Chisholm, of course, was an English wordslinger. He was born and raised in England and, again, writing American Westerns. At the moment, when I found out that he was a guy called Peter Watts, who was English, I thought, if he can do that and he can do it so well, then maybe I can do it. And so Chisholm took me into Western fiction. You've mentioned Louis L'Amour. I read him. I read Gordon Schreffs, Fred Grove, Will Henry, Dorothy M. Johnson, Robert McLeod, Louis B. Patton, Glendon Swartout, Jack Schaefer. And yeah, there you go. So you're reading Westerns. You're actually reading Westerns by a Brit, Matt Chisholm. You're not making a living as a writer at this point. You have another career. You're working. And at some point, you decide, I'm going to take up my proverbial pen and try my hand at a Western. Is that the way you started? Yeah. It was the mid-90s. I have to credit a friend of mine called Phil Caveney, who's a thriller writer. I went to a writing group that he was running, and he took me aside. He said, what do you do for a living? And I said, do this and that. And he said, well, I think you should pack all that in and become a writer. I think you've got talent. And this guy was the first published author I'd ever met. I'd been to other writing groups before, but he was published. He was successful. I gave him a lot of respect because he'd actually done it. He was a professional writer. And obviously, what he was doing worked. But he said to me, don't worry about working for a living. Just write. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, I, Obviously, I, a man without a family, a pension plan, or medical. Yes, in England, he had medical, but nonetheless, a bold move. A bold move. Maybe he had a rich inheritance. I don't know. But I thought, are you crazy? So I would not be surprised to hear I didn't take him up on his offer immediately. We wouldn't be speaking if you did, because you would be starving to death and huddled in a corner without a blanket to your name at that point. Yes, if I had taken Phil Kevney's advice, it would have cost me probably my entire <laughs> life's earnings. But so it's, if I'd ended up in debt, it would have been his fault. But no, it worked out eventually because I wrote a novel for a series called Black Horse Westerns in the middle, late 90s. I ended up writing four of them and then another one about 10 years later. So that was how I got started. There's another English writer, J.T. Edson, who has written 130 plus books. He is extremely popular on both sides of the pond. For me, I have never been able to read him like I have with the McAllister books and many others written by British writers. And part of it is probably my phobia of footnotes because he places a lot of footnotes throughout the book and every page has a footnote on it. And I get distracted by those. But I guess it's an interesting way of getting your historical context across. But you've written historical stuff that doesn't do that. No, no. If you have to stop every page and look at the bottom of the page and read a footnote, if you're going to do that, stick it in a glossary at the back. Me, writing and including the historical accuracy aspect should be subtle. It shouldn't jump out at you. You should be absorbing it organically as you read the book. So if, if he's standing up and saying, here's this fact and here's that fact, it would strike me that the guy's just showing off like how clever I am. No, J.T. Edson didn't appeal to me, I have to say. Although, again, it's extremely popular and yeah. very successful in many different aspects. He wrote modern-day Westerns as well as traditional Westerns, so more power to him. Different strokes for different folks, right? There are people that just love his stuff and can't get yeah. enough of it. There yeah. are people like me who I will read anything Louis L'Amour wrote. And right. there are others who find him too traditional, too repetitive, whatever the case may be. I don't care because when I pick up a Louis L'Amour, I'm immediately lost in the story. L'Amour is not one of my absolute favorites. I think he's a very good wordsmith, a very good storyteller. I think probably my problem with L'Amour is characterization, particularly the heroes tend to be the same guy. You've got Hondo Lane and then you've got Logan Cates in Last Stand at Papago Wells. If those two were standing next to each other, how would you tell them apart? I will agree with that, but the bottom line is I don't care because I yeah. like that character, <laughs> whatever the name he has. It's like with Dick Francis. 
I am yeah. a huge Dick Francis fan, but right. all of his characters are basically the same. But okay. it's the style of his writing, and I fall in with this. We were saying earlier, Paul, about the awkwardness of characters and the clunkiness of characters and the fact that characters make mistakes and sometimes make bad mistakes. That's what I don't find in the Louis L'Amour hero. I'm sounding critical here of L'Amour. I enjoy his books, but I would like the characters to be more believable and more humanized. I can understand if you want a hero to take you across the desert and blah, 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 he creates the perfect hero. But that's the problem for me. They're a bit too perfect. You'd like them to stub their toe once in a while. Not only stub their toe, but lose their temper, make a mistake, get drunk, go in the wrong direction rather than the right direction. I think you should be reading Wildcat O'Shea Cat. by Jeff Clinton. I think you will admire his clunkiness, to say the least. <laughs> right. The hero's very clunky, is what you're saying. Oh, yes. But admirable in his way. Because it's easy to write villains because villains are fun, right? They do what they right. like and you can just have, you can play around them. But how do you make a hero interesting? Is That's the thing that I had to think about before I got started. And how do you make a central character who is ostensibly heroic? It ticks all the boxes. They're fighters and they're ruggedly handsome and they've got wilderness skills. But how do you stop them being so perfect that they're boring? I will tell you with Wildcat O'Shea, most of the stories start out with him in jail, locked up for a drunken disorderly. And the <laughs> right, sheriff okay. has a problem that he can't solve, so he has to let Wildcat out to deal with it. So an uh, unreliable hero, a hero oh, absolutely. might deliver depending on whether he's sober or not, that kind of thing. It, yeah, that kind of thing. That's funny. Now tell me about your first book. Just sitting down to write a novel is not necessarily an intuitive thing. I know there are the rare person that do that, but the rest of us, we slog through. How difficult was it for you to begin and finish that first Western? Not that difficult. I actually wrote a draft of it in the 80s, and I sent it off to Robert Hill, and they rejected it, and quite right too, because it wasn't good enough. Then talking about my friend Phil Caveney, who said, have a go at doing this, but he suggested do it for, for free without, without and give up the day <laughs> job, which I didn't take his advice on. But I did look at this one I'd written about seven or eight years earlier, and I thought about half of it was good enough. So when I sat down to write Canyon of the Dead, it was half done. Half of it was there, and it worked. And it was a question of cutting out stuff and working out how to do it. I like all my Westerns, but if I had to go back and redo any of them, it'd be Canyon of the Dead, because it was very much a learning experience. We all start somewhere. We all have to do a certain apprenticeship. And even now, if I write a script... I know I'm going to cut the dialogue in that first draft by 50%. And then I'm going to take another 10% out of it. And then when I turn it into the story editor, they're going to take another 10% of the dialogue out of it because of the way the structure of screenplays has to be. Dialogue has to be so precise and so on point. You can't ramble at all. Again, these are all the techniques that we learn by doing. And I think really that is the only way to learn how to write is to write. Absolutely. I used to teach creative writing, and I used to say to my students when they were saying, what do I do? I said, just write something. And there's an old saying, don't get it right, get it written. In other words, get something on the page, get some words down, and then you can kick them around and change them. Just write something first, and don't worry, even if it's good, just get it out there. It goes along with the old saw that I like to use, that is, there's no such thing as writing, there's just rewriting. I find, for me, the first draft is the hard part. I tend to write a chapter at a time, so I'll spend one day on it on the first draft, which is the part I don't really enjoy because you have to cover all the story points and you have to get all the words on the page and cover everything. And then day two, I edit. It's when you say rewriting, it's mostly cutting. So I go back and cut, chop and change. And then on day three, I will polish and that's it. Three days on one chapter and then I have a day or two off and then go on the next one. 
I'm glad you clarified that it's two or three days on one chapter because I thought you were talking about writing a book in three days, and I'm going, wow, that's impressive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it would, it would be, it would be, but no, nothing, nothing like that. And then some people do a first draft, don't they? Which is the whole thing. They write the whole thing. They don't care how rough it is. They go right to the end, and then they go back and start editing. Whereas I edit a chapter at a time. But certainly, it's three days for a chapter, not a book. Thank goodness for that. As for myself, I'll write whatever the day's work is, five pages, 10 pages, whatever that is. The next day, I start by editing those pages, which warms me up to go into the current day's new work. Basically what I do. Sure. I know a lot of writers find editing difficult, but I don't. It's the easy part. The hard part is the first draft for me. After that, it's like going into your garden and chopping down the weeds and clearing it all so you can see the nice stuff, the stuff that you want to remain. When you have your first Western published, how did your approach to the Western change with that second or third book you wrote? The main problem I had with Canyon of the Dead, my first one, was that the pacing, it was just so breathless. I just didn't stop. I just threw everything at the reader and it wore me out reading it back. I still think it's a good book, but definitely if I was speaking to my younger self, I would say, slow down. You don't have to tell the reader everything. Let's have more quieter bits. So that's what I learned. I also think I went a little bit over the top on some of the violence in the first one because, I don't know, it's a feeling that I wanted to show off maybe or I had to impress. As I got better as a writer, as I wrote more, I came to the conclusion that less was more. You can actually do less and achieve more. And that's still my kind of philosophy. The lesson you appear to be telling me you learned is that you've got to give the story room to breathe. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Tell me about your latest book, Cimarron. What is that about, and how did you come to write it? I'd evolved from the Robert Hill ones, the Crowwood Press ones, which I like, but they're short, they're action-centric. And then I got The Peacemaker published by Sundown Press, and then Coyote's People by Five Star Publishing. And both of those books, I was very grateful to the publishers because they let me take my time, that I could be more leisurely. It wasn't action-centric all the time. You could spend more time on character, atmosphere, background. Okay, that's how I'd evolved from the Robert Hills into my last couple of books. And then I was thinking about what to do next. The Peacemaker brings in the Apache Chief Cochise. Coyote's People is about an incident in the Apache Wars. So they're both on a kind of an epic scale, really. They're big scale Westerns. And I thought for this new one, I wanted to scale it down. I wanted to write something smaller in scope, more intimate, more small scale, more about the texture of life in the Old West, more about the atmosphere and not great big events. So that was my rationale behind Cimarron. I also wanted to look at some of the most cliched aspects of the Western. For example, the gunfights on Main Street. I actually wrote one of those in Cimarron, but I did research and tried to work out how they really happened. They didn't happen very often, but how did they really happen as opposed to the Hollywood version of event? My hero, Calvin Taylor, works as a cowboy, so I wanted to get into what the real life of a cowboy was like. So that was my take. I was really pleased with how it turned out and the writing particularly, but it was, as I say, on a more intimate scale. How much research did you have to do for this book? And do you have to do more and more research with each book? No, the absolute opposite. I've done research since I started, which is back in the 90s, 25 years ago. And I've got things like the Time Life Old West series, and I have my own library of Western histories. I did more research. For the early ones, I had to do lots of research. 
But I've now got notebooks full of information about Apaches, about you know, Wyatt, Billy the Kid, or this, that, and the other. And I can go to those if I need information. Probably sit down and write a Western without doing any new research because I've got all this stuff stored away in one form or another. So I do less research this time. I still did some research into aspects that I was mentioning with Cimarron, for example. I was thinking, how were the real gunfights different from the Hollywood gunfights? And one of the things that I discovered was that most of the instances I read about of gunfights on Main Street in the Old West, which, you know, on the rare occasions they happened, the protagonists had their guns in their hands as they approached each other. So all this stuff about fast on the draw and having to produce your gun and all that kind of thing is strictly Hollywood. And it's just doing things like that. So as I go on, I'm lucky enough, I don't need to do as much research. It makes sense. If you're going into a gunfight, where do you want your gun? In your hand or in your holster? Yeah, tell that to Hollywood. They come up with this idea (laughs) of the fast on the draw. What you do get are references to people who were swift to kill, right? Yes. That means that they were borderline psychopaths. They were actually quite happy to shoot somebody. It doesn't mean they could produce a gun from their holster or wherever, for example. Wyatt went into the gunfight at the OK Corral with his gun in his jacket pocket. They didn't have to produce a gun at speed. In fact, they didn't. As you say, makes a lot more sense. Have your gun out, walk towards your opponent, and then see what happens. The fact is, when you react to something, your shots go all over the place. If you respond to something, then you're more likely to hit your target. And what I see with the Hollywood traditional gunfight on Main Street is everybody is reacting. Who's going to draw first? And it's all this tension. And I just can't see that's the way it really went down. Couldn't find any examples of fast on the draw. Somebody will now come along and say it happened in Wichita in 1873 and disprove my theory. But as far as I'm concerned, from my research, the fast on the draw didn't exist. The justification is you can claim self-defense if your gun's in your holster before the other guy draws on you. But that just becomes, again, a Hollywood fallacy. In reality, I would say that most people shop from ambush because most people aren't brave enough to walk down Main Street and confront the villain or whatever the case may be. As I say, from my research, these shootouts, however they happened, were very rare anyway. The gunfight at the OK Corral was not like that. And most of those famous shootouts, and there weren't that many, weren't like that. There have been a few attempts by English filmmakers to mimic the spaghetti westerns, and that went about as well as you might imagine it would. (laughs) (laughs) You're talking about things like Shalika and things like that. Yes, and there were a couple with Lee Van Cleef, who you know was everywhere doing all kinds of westerns from Italy to Spain to England, and they just have this strange British stiff upper lip approach to them, which is about (laughs) as far from the spaghetti western as you can get, even though they tried. I think one of the problems, if you do Westerns, you need the landscape. So poor old Brits, we haven't got that landscape. At least the Italians and the Spanish had something that approximated the Mexican border region. But we don't really have that. We'd struggle. The James Harriet Dales do not provide a Western background. No, no. There really hasn't been the success in Western films for the British market that there has been for British wordslingers writing Westerns. The Piccadilly Cowboys obviously had worldwide success, Matt Chisholm and J.T. Edson and others. Can I just mention some other British Western writers? Sure. Uh, the Buffalo Soldiers by John Preble, an outstanding Western. He wrote in a variety of genres, more recent British uh, authors. There's, there's a guy called Derek Rutherford, wrote one called Dead Man's Eyes that I liked. So shout out to two Brits there. Oh, this is a digression. <laughs> Do you probably remember the TV series The Prisoner from the 60s? Sure. Patrick McGoon, and they actually had a go at a Western, but that was filmed in North Wales. 
That was filmed in, is it Port Marion? Yeah, in North Wales. It's an enjoyable episode, but very wisely, they confine it to the town. So you don't really have to notice that the scenery looks rather like more North Wales than New Mexico or, or Arizona. <laughs> well, it was such a surreal show to begin with that Absolutely. It, it fit the tone. And I've actually been to Port Marion, and it is a collection of miniature buildings, and it is just the most fascinating place that is still maintained. What a perfect place to shoot that show in that manner. Andrew, there's the clanging of the chuck wagon triangle telling me it's time to wrap up this episode with some shootouts and shoutouts. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today, and I hope that you have the best of success with Cimarron. Very nice speaking to you. Thanks to our Six Gun Justice Patreon subscribers for their one-time or monthly support. If you are so inclined, you can help cover the cost of the podcast by using the button at the top of our website, sixgunjustice.com. Prior Six Gun Justice podcast episodes continue to be available on all major podcast streaming platforms. Until we meet again, be kind to each other, be kind to yourself, and may all your trails be happy. Adios for now. I'm out of here. Let's ride.